As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from deep inside the Silicon Valley future machine. Before we get to today's show, which was recorded on location in Los Angeles this week... I wanted to let you know that, as promised, we have a double episode. So in your feed, alongside my upcoming interview here with Ethan Brown, who is the founder of Beyond Meat, you should have a bonus episode, and it's a fun one, so check that out. But now, we sally forth. There are subjects to cover, burgers to eat, and the world to save. So let's get to it. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? About 14% of the total greenhouse gas emissions can be attributed to livestock simply breathing. And when they breathe, they respire carbon. There's this unnatural number of animals on the Earth's surface because of agriculture, right? And because this reliance on the animal to produce meat. Why keep doing that if you don't have to? On the program this week, we have Ethan Brown, who is the founder of Beyond Meat, which has taken an entirely different tack on the veggie burger and has lowered the backing of everyone from Bill Gates to Kleiner Perkins, the big Silicon Valley venture firm, and even the former CEO of McDonald's. As you'll hear shortly, my older brother Dave was a vegetarian for many years, and my younger brother Mike, who was very much not, decided very briefly that he too wanted to be. And he did it in our first ever holiday to Europe, which of course was in London. So at the McDonald's next to Windsor Castle, my little brother, who had declared himself meat-free literally about 20 minutes before he went to McDonald's, ordered up a veggie burger. Now, mind you, this was back in the 90s, so the burger was just this awful mishmash of carrots and peas and green goop. It was hilarious. Of course, he spit it out and immediately went and ordered a Big Mac, so his vegetarian phase lasted uh, less than an hour. Um, now, as his older brothers, of course, we never let him forget that episode. Um, bring it up constantly. It's fantastic. But I bring that up because it's obviously it's relevant to today's show because in Silicon Valley, there is a new movement that has taken hold and uh, it's called lots of things, but uh, we'll call it clean meat, which seeks in one way or another to replace industrial livestock. Now, you may recall earlier in the season, we spoke to Finless Foods, which is fermenting fish flesh in a lab. There's also Memphis Meats, which is growing beef, chicken, and duck in a lab. And then you also have companies like Impossible Foods who are making veggie burgers that bleed. But what Beyond Meat is doing is attacking the problem from a very different way. If you look at the cow as a biological reactor that takes in air and food and water to create flesh for us to eat, Beyond Meat is attempting to effectively disrupt the cow by creating meat from plants alone. 
So its meat comes not from the animals, but from a hugely complex manufacturing process that combines elements from a whole variety of plants and then puts them through extreme heat and pressure and out comes this pink meat that looks like a burger or a sausage or whatever else. Brown has raised $150 million in his quest to replace our bovine bioreactors. So last week I flew down to LA to meet him at Beyond Meat's headquarters, which is in a warehouse under the LAX flight path. So not exactly the most glamorous location, but what they're doing is super interesting. And so we sat down, we talked about why he's doing what he's doing, uh, why he thinks clean meat could someday replace livestock. And of course, to do a taste test. So while we did the interview, they had uh, their chef bring in a burger as well as a couple different sausages. So apologies for the chewing. And do stick around till the end because back home in San Francisco, like any good journalist, I did my own research. I grilled up a couple Beyond Burgers for my wife and 18-month-old toddler Cole. They're tough critics, so stay tuned to see what they thought. But now, on to the show. Well, we're here, Beyond Meat. Thanks for coming. No, thank you for having me. Appreciate um, it. This burger's really good. <laughs> thank you very much for saying that. That is the music to, to our ears. Yeah, here. it actually looks, and actually, so my brother decided he was going to be a hippie. Okay. Back in the day. Uh-huh. And that meant that he was going vegetarian. He grew his hair out long. Got it. parents were very Skeptical sad. of this? Yes. <laughs> okay. And so we started having all of this vegetarian food in our house. Right. All the veggie patties and all that Morning stuff. Morning Star. Yeah. Yep. And this was about 15 years ago. The Morning Star breakfast patties were okay. Right. Everything else was pretty rank. Right. It's been tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But this, I mean, it looks like you're designing this to be basically, as, it is meat, effectively. Yeah. So, and I can tell you the difference. So, and I experienced all that myself because I, came, I became vegetarian very early in my life and then vegan uh, about... Um, 18 years ago or so, what was happening then is you had big food companies that were allocating a certain amount of research and development, but a very small amount to plant-based meats, right, what they're calling meat substitutes. And very early in the history of our company, this is probably around 2009 or 2010, I had the opportunity to meet with one of the largest food companies in, in the world and went to their headquarters and they wanted to license some of the technology that we had to do a, a version of a chicken that they were serving to customers in retail. And it was a great meeting. I was excited about it because it's a new company. And, but at the end of the meeting, I asked them how many people they had working on research and development for plant-based meats. They said, oh, we have one half of one person. We're splitting their time between two divisions, right? And so I said, right. well, you're never going to get there. No. And so the reason that what you're having is so much better than what you talked about 15 years ago is we approach it differently. We look at this as if it's truly a global issue, if there are all these reasons that people should be thinking differently about animal protein, why not spend like you'd spend on a certain of energy? If you look at what the Department of Energy, what the... So approach this like climate change. Approach it like any big technical problem. Bring the smartest people together, give them serious funding, and kind of get out of their way. And that's what we've done. We've assembled the... I think the brightest scientists in the field, we work very hard to bring in funding to be able to allow them to have the equipment they need and the teams they need, and then give them a very clear goal. In this case, the goal is to perfectly build meat from plants. And we focused most on 80-20 beef because that's where you get the key health benefits. 80% meat, 20% fat. Fat, right. And that's, that's the most common product that, that people are consuming uh, today in beef. But that's the difference is don't think about this as a culinary issue. Think about it as a, a scientific problem that needs to be solved. And if you think about it in those in that light, 
Oh, we oh, have the breakfast. Thank you. Are these Thank the breakfast you. sausages? Oh, my goodness. Wow. That tastes like my sausage and egg McMuffin. Yeah. Yeah. And so this really gets to the core of the company. So in 2012, I was at Hillshire Brands before they were bought by Tyson. I was walking around their uh, development center. And we happened to walk by a... What's Hillshire Brands? Hillshire is a very large packaged meat company. Okay. That was, that's since been acquired by, by Tyson. And that's where you were working then? No, I was just there. I was visiting. Oh, okay. I was visiting. And I walked by a vat that was mixing sausage. And what that looks like at that point is basically a swirl of protein, fat, and water. I remember thinking to myself, there's no reason that that can't be our protein, our fat, and our water. And so what you're having today, you know, I think is a culmination of that effort is how do we mine the plant kingdom for all the right inputs and then assemble them against the architecture of meat. And I think what people don't quite yet understand is that the architecture of meat is very well known. So we have a blueprint for how to do this. We've studied the animal's muscle enough, right? But then we can take it a step further. We will put things on an MRI, just like you would your knee if you were injured. And that gives us a really granular look at the distribution of the key inputs of meat. We know that blueprint and we go to the plant and we say, okay, we need, we need basically four things. We need amino acids, we need lipids, we need trace minerals, and we need water. That's all you need for meat. One of the key things is to, is to assemble the key inputs of meat in a way that when it's cooking, for example, reacts in the same way that animal protein will. You can walk into your house as a child and you can smell that your, your mom or dad are cooking burgers. Every part of this we need to perfectly replace, right? So if you are cooking it, we want it to smell exactly like animal protein would smell, right? We want it to transition from a pink to a black and a gray, and that's difficult. You know, there are about a 1,000 molecules or more that make meat taste like meat. And so what we try to do is try to find the key drivers that are delivering that taste, that aroma, that color transition, and then match them in plants, and then right. basically get them to react the same under heating and cooling that they would uh, in an animal. Let's pause there. Let's start from like the basic, like what, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. What problem are you solving? So the problems are really, they're, they're outlined behind me in these pictures, and they're, they're four. So we think about human health, and that's the relationship between the high levels of animal protein we're consuming and things like heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. And as I said, you know, I'm not a, a doctor, so you know, I can't speak definitively on this, but what I can say is that more and more studies are coming out that suggest to the consumer that there's something going on with the level of meat we're consuming and these disease epidemics. Second is really around climate change, and there's a big debate going on about this, but you know, some scientists about 10 years ago now came out with a study that tried to do a life cycle analysis and did one of the full greenhouse gas emissions impact of livestock. And they totaled up everything from the changes in the soil when a field is when a forest is cle- cleared for a field all the way through to the fact that animals are breathing. And when they breathe, they respire carbon. They added all these numbers together. You know what? Livestock's contributing 51% of greenhouse gas emissions. Now everyone went into an uproar and said, that's too high, et cetera, and and all this debate. Is that more than cars? Correct. And that was their point. The lights you use in your home, the car you drive, those are all important. The power that powers the plants, et cetera. But what's most important is the protein that's in our plate. That made a big impact on me. And whether it's 18%, which is what the UN initially said, or it's 51, it's a big number. That's a lot. My belief is it's much higher than 80%. I have grown to be skeptical of any large institution because I think where you sit is, you know, where you stand is often where you sit. I've had personal experience with that. I did some work for Argonne NASA Labs when I was in um, graduate school and sort of could feel that around me that there were predetermined outcomes. 
But anyway, it's a big number. It's an important number. It's one that is deserving of attention in the same way that we're so focused on electric cars and, and, and solar for our buildings. Let's think about the center of the plate protein in the same way. So the third one is really around uh, natural resources. And you look at things like water, you know, and I can tell a quick story. I was with my family a few years ago walking down the street in Playa del Rey where we live and went to a restaurant and they didn't serve water. I was like, why, you know, can I get a glass of water? I said, yeah, but you know, because of the drought, we're requiring that the customers ask. We just don't put it on the table anymore. Open up the menu and it was just full of meat. So I thought about that. I said, guys, I didn't say anything. I just politely had my meal and left. But, you know, if you think about the amount of water required for a pound of beef, it's alarming. I've seen a study that said it's about the same as a nine-hour shower. Now, again, maybe that's exaggerated. But a, it's a nine-hour shower? Yeah, it's a big number. Even if it's a one-hour shower? One-hour shower, right. So, you know, you don't have to go to these extremes, but it's a lot of water, right? And so as we think about a, a, a globe that's not getting any bigger, water that's not getting any more plentiful. And people wanting to eat more meat. How do we deal with that, right? Okay, and then and the last thing is is animal welfare. People feel differently about that, right? But more and more consumers, we talked about up in Sinclair. You know, when I was growing up, you either read up in Sinclair, or you know, you got off of a bus or something, and someone from PETA handed you a, a brochure. It's very different today. You know, today uh, millennials and and younger are seeing you know videos almost on a daily basis if they choose to on their phones that show horrific conditions, and they're saying, you know, I don't want to be part of this. You know, we're being brought back to the farm in a way that we haven't in previous generations through technology. We're now able to see how our food is being produced in a way that, that others were not able to. So those are the four things we're trying to solve for. And I was taken by, really, really taken by the fact that you can solve for all four of those things by focusing on one outcome, and that's changing the protein at the center of the plate. And I had been in the alternative energy sector for about 10 years prior to starting the company. I was working in the fuel cell industry. Elegant technology, beautiful. You could drink the water coming out of the tailpipe. But it didn't solve all four things. It solved one. So how did you end up here? Right. Like, how did you, <laughs> yeah. I mean, did you have a moment where you were eating a burger and be like, God, this is good, but I feel terrible about myself for eating it? <laughs> it's, it started years ago when I was a kid. Where are you from? You're from I'm from D.C. and from, from Maryland. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, so I grew up um, in the city and... But my, my dad grew up in the country. He's a professor, and uh, he actually, I think, set a record at the time at Columbia for his PhD program because he, he couldn't stand being in New York City. I mean, what kind of young person doesn't want to be in New York City? My dad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so he, he, he finished and got out and has always loved the country but also has felt compelled to be involved in institutions and you know, schools and stuff. So took a job at the University of Maryland where, where he taught throughout my childhood but never lost that love for the country. And so as a kid... Very early, he bought a farm in the western part of the state of Maryland. And we spent, you know, weekends and spent a lot of summertime there. It was supposed to be a hobby place, but he turned it into a dairy farm. So we had 100 head of Holstein cattle. And so I really started to think about animals and agriculture uh, at an early age. Well, because especially, I imagine, I've been to a dairy farm before. Yeah. My previous beat, which is natural resources. And okay. So you know everything I just yeah. said. <laughs> so, but that is a, effectively a giant poop management business. It's very resource intensive. Exactly. His interest also in agriculture became mine in the sense that, you know, it's different. Like today, and you'll see this, you have an 18 month old child, but your weekends are done. Like they will revolve around your child. It was different. Yes, they are done. Well, yeah. When we were growing up, though, it was different, right? Like, so what I did on the weekends was largely what my dad wanted me to do. It was like I followed him around, right? Today, it's, you know, with my kids, which I'm happy to do, it's like, what tournament are we going to? What games are we going to? Et cetera. You know, his interest in this stuff really became mine, and, and you know, I loved to hang out with him and go to, we went to the 
Maryland uh, Ag Extension program together, and you know, I can remember sticking my hand inside of a cow and feeling all the different stomachs, and you know, they had these things, ways to do this. So it just it beca- uh, wait, which what was the you go to any major school, and they have these things where they have basically it's, a, it's very septic. You can essentially is this like where they have a cut, coal cut in the side? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that that became interesting to me, uh, but I went into clean tech, into alternative energy. So did you get like a do you study some kind of hard science? I got an MBA. I mean, I have an MBA. Oh, okay. I also have a master's in policy. and but I, So I went into into fuel cells, and, and it was a great career. I mean, I, I started out as a like a low-level advisor to a company and, and you know, through time rose to report to the CEO, and, and it was awesome, you know, and it was just felt like I was fulfilling a real need around climate, and but it was very clear to me that I had to go do something else over a number of separate issues and instances that clarified my thinking. I mean, I can remember sitting with someone talking about this when I was in my 20s, saying this is what I wanted to go do. And at first I conceptualized I want to make plant-based McDonald's, and, but I didn't do it. And I didn't do it because there was a lot of a lot of how I was still thinking about myself was how am I perceived by others. You know, like I was like, you know, my, I got all this education, you know, would be sort of like go great tofu factory it sounds strange you know stuff like that you know like like and so I just didn't do it and that was really the wrong thing to do and so so I spent another 10 years in 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 energy particularly as my kids were born and I started to face those choices you know around what are they going to eat thinking about what am I going to leave this planet you know after I've spent my life you know am I going to look back and say I focused on the thing that was closest to my heart and the answer was no I was doing something that was tangential to what I really cared about and so I started to research, and this is, you know, my company wouldn't be here without a lot of things, but one of them is the internet. I would come home from work and just get on the internet and start to read who's approaching this in the right way. And I couldn't find anybody. I looked around the world, and I finally came up with some guys at the University of Missouri who were taking the core protein uh, from plants, and they were realigning it into the fibrous texture of muscle. I was like, that's the right approach, what these guys are doing. So went out there and met with them, and thankfully they needed an entrepreneur, and I needed these scientists, right? And so we hit it off. They're very great people, Midwestern values, et cetera. And we became very close friends and, and worked for uh, about two and a half years in their lab um, in Missouri. I'd fly back and forth from Maryland to Missouri and got a lot of Southwest miles and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we just got to to the point where we felt it was ready to commercialize. And so at that point, we signed a a license agreement, and that's really how the company started. So you were still working on this. This was I became a consultant. I became a consultant. Right. I asked my boss, the fuel cell company I was working with, if I could become a consultant to, right. to them, and, and, and he knew I think where I was headed, and, and said that was fine. Um, and so, so you launched this in two thousand nine. Nine, in January two thousand nine. Yeah. So were you selling the this beef on the plate in front of me? No, I was selling a chicken product. So the first product I, I sold was imported from Asia. I found something that I thought was really interesting, and so I, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to find the right technology to, to actually make a contribution to the field because I felt that if I took the alternative energy approach to technology, scaling, investment, et cetera, applied it to this, you could do great things. But I also wanted to be in the market and listen to the consumer. So the first thing I did was to get the best product I could possibly find globally, and it actually came out of Taiwan. And Taiwan has a good history in this area because of the Buddhist temples and the prohibition against meat consumption in the temple. So they uh-huh. have plant-based meat there that's pretty good. And so... I started to import like a core protein from them, which was already formed, and then I would work to work with the University of Maryland and what others. What does that look like? Looks like a wood chip. 
so not too appetizing, right? But once you <laughs> once we manipulated it, it became more appetizing. But it was still falling short. I knew that mainstream consumers weren't going to go for this, right? Yeah. So you, one of the things you said, was, which I found interesting, is that when you walk in the house, yes, smell like gotcha. if, you know if someone's barbecuing, it has to smell like it's yeah. a bar, real barbecue, yeah. and it has to look like it. Is that just a marketing? No, no. This is this is the most. I mean, I'm fascinated with meat, obviously, and have a high regard for it, for its, its role in our evolution, and, and, and probably fall out of favor with a lot of the people that are early supporters of the company from the vegan community, because I believe that meat is essential to our human story. It really began about two and a half million years ago when we began to think more about predecessors, began to think more about being carnivorous and, and less of a, a herbivore. And in fact, it was the, the species that became more rather than less carnivorous that survived because as the temperature started to change, vegetation would die out, and then chimpanzees that were reliant on that vegetation would also perish with it. You know, we figured out another way. And so as vegetation changed, we could hunt new animals and move to different ecosystems, et cetera. And so you know, we were initially scavengers for the most part, and not very good hunters at all. But then we developed the ability to hunt primarily through using a very smooth, round stone that we could throw up to 80 feet and take down prey, and, and that became our first tool for hunting, and then developed other things, spears, et cetera. Like a baseball or a cricket ball. Exactly. In fact, our our shoulder is designed differently than the rest of the ape. Uh, uh, so we could throw. So we throw, yeah. So you can see an ape, an ape cannot pitch a baseball the same way that we can. Right. They, can they can throw it. But. Yeah. So that became a, a, a super important um, part of our history because it allowed for a much more efficient stomach. So our stomachs were really big when we started to consume meat, and the nutrient-dense form of meat allowed it to compress and become much smaller. That did something really interesting. It allowed all this energy to go to our brains. So when we started eating meat, our brains were about 600 cubic centimeters. They're about 1,300 today, and that really occurred over that time. There's a debate in the scientific Thank you, McDonald's. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's a debate in the community about whether that was fire or meat that really caused that, that right. tremendous... I definitely side with meat because the fire came so much later. It came about 300,000 years. So the progression in the size of the brain had already occurred largely by that time. So at any rate, so meat enormously important to, to who we are as humans. It's like riding a bike. I haven't had meat in years. I mean, I eat it all the time as an experiment. I spit it out, right? But I haven't sort of sat down and enjoyed it. But I know exactly what it tastes like. It's just ingrained in us, right? I know the feel it's of like it. It's like a visceral primal smell. thing. Exactly. Yeah. I walked into my house about two years ago. My wife was cooking the burger. And I was like, oh, shit, this reminds me of my childhood. And I was like, okay, we're getting closer. You know? <laughs> right, we're right, getting right, closer. Right. And so it has to be, it's an emotional connection with meat. I mean, I have a slide that I sometimes use that, and this is, I think, sort of funny, but you know, chimpanzees will exchange meat for sex. It, really? It has an important role. And uh, can you tell me that's different? Transactional. Is it different than the modern internet? <laughs> <laughs> we do a lot of pomp and circumstance around it. But, yeah, you know, yeah. So. We're going out to a nice steak dinner, though. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so there are our, our holidays are organized around it. You know, our religion is infused with it, tradition, etc. You watch the NFL on Thanksgiving Day; they're literally eating a carcass during the interview. I'm not one to say that meat is not important to our culture. The transition that I'm hoping we can be on is one where we continue to love meat, continue to enjoy meat, but it's plant-based meat. And so we trademarked a saying, which I think is important which is uh, eat what you love. And that's what I believe I'm in the business of doing is allowing people to continue to have all these meat occasions, but do it with something that's healthier for them, better for the planet, more humane. And that's really what I... And so this meat here, which looks like meat and tastes like meat and smells yeah. like meat, Thank but you. it's not meat. Thank you. You're paying me a huge compliment. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you make this? Right. 
you're holding up a breakfast sausage, which which I'm in love with this product, and, and the reason yeah. that I am is it's got ingredients that I think, strangely enough, are sexy. It has sunflower seed protein in it. Who doesn't want to have that? If you want to have a, a piece of pork, or would you like beautiful sunflower seed protein? Would you like? It's got mung bean. It's got rice protein. It's got pea protein. It is so rich with amino acids. It's got a complete protein score. You feel light after you consume it, but yet satiated, right? And so I believe that's the future of meat. Right. Uh, we make that in the following way. So you separate the protein from fiber. Let's say we're talking about peas, for example. We take pea flour. We then separate out the protein from the fiber by changing the pH level in water. That essentially creates a separation. We then dry the protein. We run the protein through heating, cooling, and pressure. That's realigning. It's restitching it into the form that it would have in muscle. You know, this is to the naked eye. That gives us the fibrous texture of meat. Okay, so that's half the battle. That's, then we have the canvas to work with. That creates the basic platform, and then you have to infuse it with the inputs that make meat have the mouthfeel that it has, have the aroma that it has, and the taste it has. And as we talked, there are over 1,000 molecules that make meat taste like meat. And we use something called a mass spectrometer to isolate key molecules and then try to match them in plants. We then find them in plants, and we assemble them in the architecture of meat. And that's really what our product does. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So effectively, you are taking Sam Macau. Right. And I'm out in the field, and I'm right. eating all this stuff, and I goes through it processes through my 14 stomachs, however many cats right. have, yeah, and creates my flesh. But yeah. effectively, what you are doing is bypassing that. Yeah, is basically doing that work of the cow. It's amazing, right? To me, that was the revelation I had. You know, years ago, was like, why wouldn't you do this? The cow is spending all day chewing. And they're essentially trying to organize this plant structure. Their, their yeah, digestive system. Yeah, burping and farting, methane. Yeah. is terrible. Yeah, I mean, so so the study I referenced, which again is debated, but said that about fourteen percent of the total greenhouse gas emissions can be attributed to livestock simply breathing. And when they breathe, they respire carbon. There's this unnatural number of animals on the Earth's surface because of agriculture, right? And because this reliance on the animal to produce meat. Why keep doing that if you don't have to? If we can fulfill our promise, and I'm the first to say we're not there yet. I mean, there are differences between the products, right? There's as good as that sausage was, we perfectly prepared it. Yes, it's gone now. (laughs) We prepared it here, though. Our chef prepared it, you know, et cetera. We need to make these infallible. Beef is a great example. Our burger tastes really good. We're still working on making that into a loaf. 
so the consumer can take it home and they can put it in a casserole. They can, you know, put it in a lasagna. So like a, a thing of ground beef like you'd find in a That's store. harder for us because we can't predict the exact use of uh, right. the consumer. So and you're so, selling it in burger form. Because that's predictable for us. We have to get better so that it can be something that the consumer can use in their house however they want to do it. So it's indistinguishable. So there's no trade-off. So you started this in 2009. Who was your first investor? I was me <laughs> for, for a long time, for a long time. And, and um, you know, I had a decent amount of money set aside from working in, in the company I worked in, but not a huge amount at all, just young kids and, you know. Yeah. And so I set aside money to make sure that if something went wrong, I'd be able to protect and provide for my family. And then I just blew through that money. Like I just got like, a, and I sold a house and I so we sold our house. I mean, it was a mess. Like I just got myself in. Sounds quite stressful. Yeah, it was highly stressful, and there was a there was a the night that, that, that I, I went to Silicon Valley to meet with Bill Gates. He, he'd come down to to one of the funds that we're working with. I I had sort of so over levered myself that the credit cards I was using to check into the hotel weren't being accepted. <laughs> so I was like, "Am I about to meet one of the richest men in the world, and I can't find a place to spend the night?" <laughs> <laughs> and thankfully, I worked it out, and it was fine. Right. But I had put everything into it, and I needed help. And so a, a, a terrific group in, in Silicon Valley, uh, Kleiner Perkins, stepped forward and provided that help. There were two guys at the time, Ray Lane and a guy named Amol Desponde. You know, they offered me less money for more of the company than, than, than others. But I took it because I knew their reputation. And Ray Lane has been with me every day since. Uh, I was on the phone with him this morning. He's an amazing guy. He is an incredibly important mentor to me. He was a, the president of Oracle for a long time, very successful there, but very down-to-earth guy. You know, they've helped me at every major decision. It's been great. So you've raised, what, seven, $70 million ish We've raised 150 150 Yeah, 155 yeah. Gates, obviously, I don't know if he invested then, but he eventually invested. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he invested almost right away. Yeah, I mean, Kleiner invested first, and then Gates followed. Yeah, and Gates and I think Richard Branson as well. Branson is not in, in ours. He's in Memphis Meats, which is a really interesting company. But um, but we have some great investors. We got Bizstone from from Twitter, Evan, Evan Williams yeah. from Twitter, uh, Matt Gowan, Don Thompson from McDonald's, former CEO of McDonald's, That's former CEO of McDonald's. With him yesterday on the phone this morning. I mean, these guys are involved. Like this is a fun thing. This is fun. Well, so this is my question because also you have Tyson, which yeah. is maybe the, well, I mean, I think the biggest meat companies are in Brazil, but yeah, but the largest domestic yeah, meat company, largest American yeah. meat company. Yeah. yeah, I think it's. Yeah. Is this kind of like um, are you the electric car to the internal combustion engine of right. meat? We talk about that a lot, like, and that's obviously a metaphor that I, uh, analogy that I understand really well because of the, uh, the fuel cells out yeah. there. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting, it, it, it applies even further. So we used to sell against Cummings diesel engines with fuel cells for backup power and stuff like that. And the problem was that Cummings diesel engines kept getting better. Well, the animal's not getting better. <laughs> meat is meat. There's biological limits. Every time the meat industry tries to make them more efficient, the consumer says, no, don't do it. You know, Because that means more cruelty. Yeah, yeah, antibiotics and weird <clears throat> stuff doing yeah. right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Chickens that can't bear their own weight, things like that. So we are rapidly progressing against a target that's standing still. And so we are absolutely, and I have that quote from Henry Ford about, you know, people ask me, you know, if you ask people what they want, they say faster horses. That's not the right way to think about it, right? But we had enough faith in our idea that we said, you know, if we can create a plant-based meat that is not Morningstar, that's not any of these other ones, but is truly meat from plants, literally designed like meat. You know, thoughtfully from the ground up, not trying to make a soybean masqueraded steak, but actually rebuild it, that people would, would come to that. Because I think it, it resolves the conflict that we have. When we began eating meat, we didn't have the brain that we have today. 
we now have the ability to consider all these factors of our actions, right? And that's probably what makes us unique among other species is that we have that much more sophisticated development. And so people are conflicted about it, but we do it out of habit. But if we can provide a third way and say, you know, you can have this piece of meat and not have to worry about those other things, people go for it. Guilt-free meat. They're excited about that. There's a latent desire for it. Every time we make the product better, we get more and more people to come in. Some people bear the sacrifice, but most won't. And so it has to be indistinguishable. And so how how many locations are you selling at now? 27,000. I think the, the car analogy is, is fantastic, but I think that the, the one that I think a lot about is the landline and the mobile phone. There's this debate going on now about whether we're allowed to call our products meat, which I will absolutely fall on my sword for. Oh, yes, yeah. because the Cattlemen's Association is saying, yeah. you cannot call this meat. Exactly. But are you calling this meat? It's called Beyond Meat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's sort of like, you know, you try to catch it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's a really interesting. It's a yeah. really, so there's only, you can only get champagne from one place. Yeah. And you can only, they're just saying meat has to come from an animal. It's in a really interesting debate. They've really pushed back hard, what is it, this year, basically? Yeah, U.S. Cattlemen's yeah, Cattle Association. Uh, State of Missouri is in the legislature has, has passed a law. The governor hasn't signed it yet that would, would stop us from calling it, which is ironic because we, we're rapidly growing in our employment in Missouri, our plants in Missouri, our factories in Missouri. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And I think we're a real point of pride for the University of Missouri. I'm certainly proud of our association with them. So, But, yeah, there, there is this move to block us from from calling it meat, and I'm, I'm in obviously a very, very, very um, severe opposition to that. Why? You know, I think if meat industry is doing fine, by the way, you know, it's <laughs> there's a lot of beef on the menu, right? So I think it's premature, and I think it's only hurting their cause because it's creating so much attention for us. So within days of them following that with the USDA, the Cattlemen Association, I was on um, CBS Morning News with um, John Dickerson. And, you know, that's millions of people watching that. And I get to tell our story and et cetera. And, and so it's only creating attention for what we're doing. But I think, you know, there's a lot of things here. You know, consumers don't want to be told how to, to articulate what they want. And this is an effort to do that. And that's going to be rejected. But I think most importantly, you know, if, if I told you you weren't allowed to call an iPhone, you wouldn't not use it. You know, you yeah. know, iDevice, you know, my mobile, whatever. And so if the, you know, if there was a hypothetical landline association, you know, 30 years ago and they tried this, it wouldn't have worked, you know? And so it's not going to work. Consumers are going to eat the product regardless of what we call it. But I think there's a, a really important point for me philosophically around if you're stuck on the origin, if meat has to come from chicken, cow, or pig, we're never going to get to where we need to go in terms of these four issues we've identified. But if you can think about meat in terms of composition, amino acids, lipids, trace minerals, and water assembled against a certain blueprint, we can absolutely deliver that. And so why can't we call that meat? And then there's this separate arguments about there's you know, the meat. Because the end product is effect- biological, you know, effectively it's the same. same thing. Sure, if you get molecular differences. But yeah. from the consumer perspective, you're providing a piece of meat. And there's a second strain of argument, which is around for many years, people coconut meat, things like that. You know, uh, you know, the Webster's Dictionary actually has a definition there that, that's about meat being something other than the cover of something. So meat can be the meat of, of a piece of fruit, et cetera. So there's that. And then the last one is, you know, we're actually not calling it, we're calling it beyond meat, right? So there's all ways to address it. But my underlying message is that it's not from a tactical perspective, not the right thing for the associates to be doing because it's right. just giving us free publicity. So let them keep doing it then. Go for it. It does not scare me. And is there something in the science? Um, I think I mentioned uh, when we met before, I met the guys at Finless Foods uh-huh. who are growing fish meat in a lab. Right. I met Uma at Memphis. Great guy. Yeah. They're growing meatballs and chicken yep. and Love stuff in yeah. a lab. And that's yeah. actual from meat, fermenting it, basically. Yeah. Is what you're doing, 
I think it sounds like fundamentally different. It is. And is there something, is there, has there been breakthroughs in science that has allowed you to do what you're doing Absolutely. now that yeah. you couldn't have done five or 10 years ago? Yeah, I, I, I think yes and no, personally on the, the lab-grown meat. So I looked at that a lot before I started Beyond Meat, and probably in the period 2004, 5, and 6 was when I was most intensely looking at it. There's a guy named Jason Matheny who was really the sort of, in my view, one of the early advocates for that. And he put me in touch with some scientists that, that were, were, were playing around with it. And I got this feeling that I had with fuel cells. And there's a joke in the fuel cell industry that fuel cells are good for the future and they always will be. It's sort of like they're always <laughs> Right, 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 right. And I just didn't want to – I didn't want to spend my career – like I'm, I've said this before that like technology has no regard for your career. Like it's no. going to come you – know, so you could spend decades. And I, I have colleagues that have done that. And I didn't want to, to start a new venture and have it be a 40-year scientific endeavor, right? I wanted to put product out every year and hear from the consumer. And so I just didn't feel that that was ready. But I also had some concerns around, you know, if people are pulling off of meat, particularly for reasons around maybe carcinogenic concerns, would you be able to address those with lab-grown meat? And Uma's a very bright guy. He'll figure that out. But there were some challenges there. And then lastly was the issue around consumer acceptance. How will consumers feel about test tube meat? It's going to be it's going to be interesting to see. I hope that they accept it because look at the big market. I think every solution is needed. But we have a unique ability to tell a story. You know, if you think about companies like any of these sort of artisan meat companies, right, where they tell the story, here's the farmer you've met, you know, Applegate, for example. You know, here's the farmer that grew your, you know, X, Y, and Z. We can yeah. do all of that. I can introduce you to the farmers that grew the peas, that grew the sunflowers, that grew the mung bean, the rice, et cetera. Uh, we can show you how it's made. We can get mom really comfortable with it, and we need to do that. And as a parent, I'm super comfortable with it because I know that my, my son and daughter are getting very, very clean protein. I allow them to have far more of these products than I ever would animal right. protein because there's no concern for me. There's no no cholesterol. You know, they're growing like crazy right now. They're they're 12 and 14. There are things in this in these products because we use a lot of pea protein that are great for growth, like arginine I was talking about, that – for a growing body are terrific. And so I actually believe I'm giving them a superior form of meat, no cholesterol, very clean protein, lower levels of saturated fat. Uh, that makes me feel really good as a parent. In terms of the marketing in Europe, obviously there's lots of issues around GMOs, GMO, right? et cetera. Yeah. Are you in Europe? Are you going there? Do you have to approach it differently? Is it more of a challenge? It's only a challenge because there's different regulatory bodies and you know the EU is not completely consolidated in that regard. So that is kind of a headache. But I'm so excited about going into the EU because it's such a mature market. The movement here is is quickening every day, but it's even exponentially there. And so, yeah, we are. We're going into the UK. Um, we're going into Germany and, and, and many other parts of the, of Europe. And I just can't do it quickly enough. That's my. And is that right. the question? Is it just a question of just going through some red tape to get? Yeah, we have far. So the biggest issue for us is production. We just have far more demand than we can handle, and that's a blessing because I've been on the other side of it. I've been on the side where like I. It's terrible. I went out early and hired a big sales team, and we just couldn't get people to buy the product. And it was awful. Oh, really? Yeah, so I had to let them go, and they were great When people. was that? In like 2012, 2013. Just was that enough. because of the product or because people Both. weren't ready? Both. Both. Our products weren't good enough. People just weren't thinking this way yet. When I was first working on this, I would go to, to, to the stores and hand out the product myself so I could talk to these customers and learn from them. And the thing that really got me going from a, a, this being a big idea was women in particular come up to me and say, I can get my husband to eat this, and he really needs to because the doctor said X, Y, and Z. That I was like, okay, I get this now. Like, you know, we, we, we can create a piece of meat that will allow people to have what they love and not have these concerns. We're going to make a big, big impact. 
but that was fewer than it is today, and so it was hard. Again, every time we make this product slightly better, like literally welcome hundreds of thousands of new consumers. So one thing, what's the cost compared to right. meat? Right. Meat, right? And so six years ago, you said it, the product wasn't quite there yet, and you keep right. improving it. Yeah, I just had the secret burger two <laughs> <laughs> When you say you improve it, what are you doing? I think about it like this: it's a acronym. It's uh, F A A T, fat. So it's the flavor, it's the aroma, it's the appearance, and the texture. Those are the keys, right? You know, and is this all just chemistry, effectively? We have a lot of chemists here. Our head of, in fact, our head of our entire research program is a chemist. He's uh, from Scripps, brilliant guy. He's Iranian. We have people from all over the world. That's the part I love. And in fact, we call this where you're sitting today. We call this the Manhattan Beach Project because I wanted to evoke that sense of urgency of the Second World War in Chicago, then later at Oak Ridge. But yeah, we're also close to Manhattan Beach, of course. Yeah, we get biophysicists, we get chemists, we get food scientists, engineers, and it's amazing if you put them all together, fund them well, and give them a clear goal, what they can do. It's absolutely fascinating to watch. But you got to put them under pressure. So we have this program called uh, Beyond Meat Rapid and Relentless Innovation. The symbol for it is a pirate. It's a steer that looks like a pirate. And the idea is, you know, the stage gate and all these things are important. And they're, you know, people preach and advocate them. I hate them because I, I just like groups of people working on hard problems. And if I can create an environment here where people get lost in their work, I'm successful. If they forget to call home, if they... Maybe you're here so late that we get to shower, you know, stuff like that. Like, if you can create that passion, that's what gets projects done, not spreadsheets, right? And so yeah. I fight against that, and it's a good – there's a good medium because I have people who really love that stuff here too, so so we, we have a middle ground. But infusing them with the mission, getting them passionate about it is what's necessary, and, and they go for it. You know, we, we're running – Hundreds of experiments. How many people are here? So we have across the company about 200 people, about I think 175. Right. Here in El Segundo, we have about 50 or 60. And so the amount, so you have one plant. We have about 80,000 square feet of production in in Columbia, Missouri. Everything we do, we set up for speed, and we set this production model up for speed too. So we create the core proteins in Missouri. It's like thinking about beef that, think, think about a cow that has been basically slaughtered, and then you're getting a side of beef off of that cow. Mm-hmm. That's what we ship out. And we ship that out to processing facilities across the country. So we ship it to Texas. We ship it to Vernon, California out here. Uh, we're opening up a new one in, in Georgia. And then they form it. We contract that part basically out. Basically contract manufacturing. Correct. Correct. And that allows us to scale quickly. It allows us to just So what are those plants making when they're not making your meat? They set up clean rooms for us. Yeah. They're making animal protein. This is the same basic set of materials. And so why not work with people who know how to handle that? So, but effectively, are these slaughterhouses? Uh, it's a step removed from the slaughterhouse. It's these a are processing. processing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, I had to go to a slaughterhouse the other day, which was, was eye-opening. Um, I'm sure. We're doing a, a film with uh owner of one of the largest slaughter operations in the country where I show him our process, walk him through every step of it, and then he shows me his. And they film that. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. People always ask us, you know, is this processed food? Can I have this? So, well, it's a tale of two processes. Like, which one do you want? Because they're both a process. I feel very comfortable that I can get people to accept and be excited about the process we use. I can show them where it's grown. I can show them how it's separated. And I'll show you today. Is this scalable? It is, infinitely. That's the best part. That's right. The thing. So, I guess that's the ultimate, like, getting yeah. back to the big, the big problems you're trying to solve. Yeah. Maybe we're already at peak cow or yeah. whatever. But, yeah. like, can we get there? I love it. I love that. My dream is to leapfrog. You know, so if you go to the 90s, if you go to parts of like Indonesia and stuff, I can remember being there and being like, oh, there's no telephone poles here. It's just people on mobile phones. 
stuff. It was amazing to see. Yeah. Can we do that? Can we avoid exporting the animal intensive agriculture that we rely on today? And I think we can. It is scalable. The the supply chain right now is really nascent, really inefficient, really frustrating. We talked about cost a little bit. You asked about cost. Yeah. Why aren't we cheaper than 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 animal proteins? Bizarre, right? I just talked about remove the bottleneck, you know, and if you go to any... Are you dramatically more expensive? Not dramatically, but if you, if you go to any microeconomics course, they're going to focus on, you know, production Supply and chain. get the bottleneck. Yeah. Go to the factory. Get it out. We've done that. The animals is enormously inefficient bioreactor. We've, we've said we don't need it. Go right to the plants. Get it from the plants. So we should, we should be a fraction of the cost. Why aren't we? And that's because this is just a new industry. We had... Initially, when we started, we had to rely on proteins that were developed for other reasons. So... You know, soy protein is largely around because of soybean meal for animal feed and things like that, soy protein. Then they made soy protein isolate, which we can use. But if you start to think about the plant kingdom purposefully as a source of, of direct protein for human consumption, it's amazing how many different crops there are. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated by things like mustard seed. Lupin is a really interesting one. Camelina. Once you start to think about plants differently, like even like tobacco leaves have protein in it. Spent yeast from breweries has a great source of protein in it. So it's proteins everywhere, and it's a question of harvesting it and getting it. Once that scale starts to change, we will dramatically underprice meat. And when we do that, I think it's going to get really exciting. There's latent desires being met, like I want to have this satiating piece of protein, but I'm concerned about all these things, my health, et cetera. If I can not only have that, but it's cheaper, I think it's going to be lights out. I always ask this. What was your worst day of work? Uh, I'm not having it today, but it's <laughs> the last couple of days have been tough. Man, um, usually sort of intermixed personal and work stuff. You know, it's like I, when I first started the company, I got so involved in it, and I'm still enormously involved in it now, but like to the detriment of my own family. Yeah. You know, and that, that, caused, that caused a lot of problems. It wasn't necessarily my kids. I've always been, I've always felt that my kids are like melting ice cream. Like I, I, I got to just enjoy it because I know they're changing, you know? So the person that paid for that would be my spouse. Right. You know, because I'd be like, I'd get home, I'd be exhausted, but I'd focus on them, you know. And so that was, that made for tough times. But um, I thought hopefully addressed that somewhat. Uh, the biggest pain point for this entire business, there are two things. One has been the frustration of knowing that we can do this, knowing that it's possible, but not getting there quick enough. There are products on the shelf today that I wish weren't out there because I know the product we have now is better. And that's sort of a continual thing, right? And so I'm really proud that you had that 2.0 and liked it. But this summer, the whole consumer base is having the, the first version, you know. And I think it's good, but I, I just want to be like, oh, God, we got something better for you guys. Right. We'll have something better next year and next year and next year. That's one thing. The other is not being able to provide customers with, with their orders. It's just hard to grow at the pace we're growing at. And so we have angry retailers that, that are like their shelves are empty, and, and that's really frustrating, and that has to, that has to be corrected. And, and, yeah. But at this pace we're growing, it's tough. But then, you know, just stuff about, like, we've, we've come very close to running out of money a lot and stuff like that. I'm very thankful, i got to say again, with Kleiner Perkins and the investors we have, they, they've, they've always stepped in, including yeah. offering to write personal checks, which has been great. Oh, wow. Yeah, pretty amazing group. I had one last question before I go check out the operation. Yeah. Tyson. That's like... Mike Tyson? It, yeah, though they're, why, why invite the kind of the competition into the tent? The big, bad, <laughs> you know, gorilla you're trying to slay. I think it starts again, if you ask me about how I got into this, I think it starts a long time ago for me. I think about the partners in my dad's dairy business, their family, the kids there and stuff like that. And, and you know, it's hard to demonize people when you know them really personally. I just think it's like we have Humane Society as an investor. We have, you know, the former CEO of McDonald's, Tyson. You know, this is a big problem and it's something that I think you just get 
further if you're collaborative and not throwing stones. I've never been into that. I think that Tyson's, you know, has a good focus on this point, which is they're in the protein business. They want to be sustainable. So I just don't, I just think being adversarial is counterproductive. There's just not enough time. And I think that they want to be doing things that are beneficial for human health and the environment and animals. And they see us as an opportunity to do that. But it certainly caused a lot of discomfort with our, our followers. I stopped reading them. I mean, we, we, we spent the, I spent the first day after the announcement kind of looking at some of the feedback we're getting. You didn't check Twitter, did you? I didn't. I don't know if I, I, did, I checked one of them, and it was like I had blood on my hands and all this other stuff. And, oh, and wow. so it's just like too personal, and so I stopped looking at it. But I vehemently disagree with that. I think that that this is the right way to approach it. That is almost all the time we have. First of all, I want to thank Ethan Brown for uh, taking the time to sit down and talk about what he's up to. It's I find it super interesting. But before I go, as promised the taste test. So I got back home to San Francisco. I bought a couple of Beyond Burgers and I wanted to see for myself how they tasted out in the wild and not when a chef who was expert in cooking them to perfection prepares them. So I did it. I cleaned off the grill. I threw the patties on the flame about four minutes each side. And then brought them back in the house to see what my wife, Chinua, and my son, Cole, thought of them. What do you think? Well, let me finish my bite. <laughs> um, it's... I don't know. Oh. I mean... <laughs> exactly. Cole is also. Mm. You haven't even tried it. It's good. It doesn't taste like meat. Now keep in mind the burger I was eating was what I guess you'd call Burger 1.0. The one I tried in LA was actually their next iteration, so, uh, which was better. Personally, I liked them both, but I guess I'm kind of easy that way. And for what it's worth, Cole demolish the rest of both of our burgers so perhaps beyond meat is very much on its way anyhow that is all the time we have for real this time thank you for listening rate the podcast review it and we will talk to you next week bye bye helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.